Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Antonio Squilante. Antonio, how are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm good. It's uh, you're over in in LA. It's early. You've got the little ones sleeping, but you know, hopefully, yeah, the podcast calls, so we're getting it done. (laughs) I haven't been on a podcast in a very long time, so I'm pretty excited. Thank you for having. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be this is going to be a really good conversation today. I'm very excited. So before we get to the topic of the day, just go through you know who you are what you've done professionally up to this point and just what you're what you have going on right now awesome thank you well probably my accent will give it away but like i was born and raised in italy so i moved to the states about 10 12 years ago mostly to work in strength and conditioning i was myself an american football player in europe i played professional for a few years but american football in europe it's a very small sport like sure there is a professional league but it's nothing compared to the NFL in the States, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be a strength coach. So I did some work with rugby with the Italian national team for a few years, the women's side. It was very fulfilling, very, uh, a very good positive experience because rugby is one of those few sports in Europe where strength training actually matters. Mm-hmm. So you have more of a chance to apply what you're passionate about. But I really wanted to really work in football. I wanted to be able to see what that feels like and look like on the professional side of things. So since I moved here, my first job was in Boston, teeny tiny division three college in Worcester, Anna Maria College. Uh, By far the most amazing coaching experience I've ever had in my life. So wonderful. Like I had to live on, like at the dorms, interact with the students a lot, spend time with them, tutor them, bring them to the weight room. It was a great experience. It was a wonderful experience. After that, I moved around a lot per usual, like every Mm -hmm. other strength and conditioning coach. I worked in Canada for a bit, more on the East Coast. Pretty much I changed school every year and a half or two, mostly with football and some rugby, but mostly football. And then in 2016, actually 14 leading up to 16, I started working for a professional track and field team that was training for the Olympics. So that was my main focus of interest. Also because I was a track and field athlete in high school as well. So I'm very passionate about track and field. It's probably... If I were to choose, it's probably my favorite sports to mm-hmm. coach and practice and watch, especially sure, showing sure. and sprinting. So I did some work with them leading up to the Olympics. That was my last coaching experience up until now. After that has been mostly work in academics. So I went back to school, took another master's degree, moved to Los Angeles, started my PhD program here at USC, which is going pretty well. I should have like about a year left in the program. And then as of last year, I myself started riding the bike at the velodrome. It's a different sport. I wanted to learn it. I wanted to practice it. And that's how I developed some connections with the local community. And that mm-hmm. got me into the USA Cycling, working for the national team as a sports scientist slash strength conditioning. Uh, the, so USA Cycling has several teams under the same umbrella of cycling, like road cycling, track, endurance, sprinting. So they're different domains. Uh, the team that lives and works here in Los Angeles is the sprinting team, so the sprinters. Yep. And these guys and girls are purely, they, they're wheel lifters on wheels. 
So <laughs> they lift big weights. They spend a lot of time in the weight room. They're a perfect hybrid between a track and field athlete, like a thrower, a jumper, a sprinter, mm-hmm. a weightlifter, and a road rider. So like they, they combine all those aspects together. So it's been a great experience so far. It's very challenging because it's one of those sports where it doesn't really matter how powerful you are if you can't sustain the high level of power for mm-hmm. long mm-hmm. enough to compete in your event. So sure, it's, sure. it's a very taxing sport, very anaerobic but long enough where everything burns and everything feels like it's painful <laughs> and you have to sustain that power for those up to yeah. a minute sometimes if you're doing a right. time trial. Right. So it's very heavy on the metabolic side as well, which is something sure. fairly right. new to me. So that mm-hmm. was like probably the reason why I said like, well, I kind of want to go back and coach again and learn something yeah. else, learn something new. And so far, I mean, we crashed it like last national championship just three weeks ago all our athletes medaled our women qualify for world championship they're living in a week now our men teams qualify for the finals for pan am games so we did very well the team is now working for the 2024 olympics and moving forward for the 2028 olympics and we also just started a talent id program to scout young athletes across the country that has been an amazing task to accomplish because there's a lot of Data analytics that goes into it and finding the perfect match for the type of athletes we need. Sure. So the movement is very healthy, it's thriving. We'll see great results, definitely in 2024, but for sure in 2028 as well. Yeah, that's very cool. So any grad student or former grad student listening to this who has done Wingates or repeat Wingates is like, why would anybody want to do that? (laughs) So imagine a Wingate. That's and imagine doing that six times in a matter of an hour. That's an average training session for them. Oh, my goodness. So it's brutal. It's yeah. literally brutal. But on one respect, it's kind of like a strength and power coach's dream. If that's so intricate to the sport that you just get to focus on it, you know. Yeah. So I'm, I am interested, though. You know, you said you wanted to work with American football coming from Europe. And to the States, American football, the strength and conditioning culture is, is very unique, we'll say. You know, and so I'm guessing, would this have been the mid-2000s? Yep. That uh, this, this so happened? I played from 2009 to consistently to 2014. Oh, okay. And in those okay. years, I was already coming to the States to coach some of the mm. seasons here because the season Division Three is very short. So yeah, mid-2000s. So was it what you expected? Were there things that you got into it and you're like, I think these things need to change? Just briefly, what was that like for you? And what were you able to bring to the table, so to speak? That's a great question. It was somewhat of a cultural shock when I first Mm. started because, you know, like, again, professional football in Europe is nowhere comparable to professional football in the States. Like a very good game it's probably in terms of like sheer like athletic performance is comparable to an average division two division one game in the state so it's still decent football but it's nothing compared to like the nfl you know right if you look at just metrics and numbers with that being said our strength and conditioning program in europe was one of our coaches walking in the room giving us a book which i'm sure you're familiar with it's called bigger faster stronger it's oh, like, yeah. read the book, follow the program, get better, see ya. 
that was it. There was no coaching, no sessions at the gym. We had no clue what we were doing. Technique and form were horrible, let alone like the amount of weight that we were moving. It was just bad. Like, mm. It's like, I survived to that. that. That should not happen to any athlete. That was not good coaching. And then when I moved to the States, you know, like my first year working in football, I thought like every single coach on the field could work for NASA for how smart they were. Like they were like talking about periodization and let's do some sprinting and agility work and mm. conditioning. And that was super cool because like I've learned that in school, you know, like yeah. I, I went out of my way to join the NSCA when I was still in Italy, learn about what the NSCA like guidelines or recommendations were for strength and conditioning. So I was in that mindset coming in the American system, so to speak, but I never witnessed it firsthand. And that was mm. like amazing. Like I literally like, it was like truly overwhelming at the beginning. Like, okay, now I have to step up my game. I need to like program, grab my pen and start writing programs for like weeks and figured out what to do, when to go to the weight room, when to go to the field what devices we have available to measure performance, which that was completely new to me. So I want to say probably the first year or two, I hope generally hope I did a good job, but for me, it was mostly learning. Like mm. I need to keep up with these guys. I need to be able to speak their language. Keep in mind that like, I moved to the States speaking very little English. Mm. I learned English from the NSCA textbook. So I passed the CNCS exam. So that was my, so there was a- That's how everyone language. should do it barrier to in place <laughs> so yeah. it was stressful but like a massive like a super uh, mm. positive learning experience and it literally put my profession to all another level so i'm grateful i did it what i brought to the table that was in my opinion a little unique is that so at least the schools that i was working at there was a very much like black and white approach to strength and conditioning it was either wear room and weight room was heavy weights, heavy mm. squat, heavy bench pressing, or was like field work, like sprinting, change of directions, lead work. What I was able to bring in, mostly because of my personal background studying in Italy, was bridging that gap with plyometric training, mm. Olympic weightlifting, and some metabolic conditioning that I've learned from some of the best in the business, which are some of the soccer coaches in Europe, they do a phenomenal job with like small size games and all those like specific applications of metabolic conditioning and looking at the work to rest ratio, looking at distance covers, speed, like all those cool variables that you need to consider to do a sport specific type of program. So I was able to bridge that gap. Mostly, I would say 90% bringing in some well done plyometric training because, you know, plyometric sure. is that nice glue between heavy lifting and sprinting on the field. Mm -hmm. if, if you nail that right, if you program that correctly, everything you gain in the weight room will somehow benefit what you do on the field. It's like mm -hmm. adapting those muscles to work in a way that they're designed to work on the field, which not always happens in a weight room. For sure. Of the exercises. So that's probably my little contribution to the model here was bringing in some plyometric work, a little bit of Olympic lifts, and some metabolic conditioning. Very cool. That's awesome. As I've progressed throughout my career and like learning more about what overseas practitioners are doing, particularly in, in soccer and rugby, 
it definitely made me feel like, oh man, there's a whole world I'm missing. If I just stick with like American trends and kind of the style, so to speak. So I was just very curious how that was going the other direction. So that's very cool. So today we'll probably get into some of this bridge, the bridging the gap because we, you know, we're going to talk periodization and now maybe, maybe for the sake of this discussion, it, it might be easiest to maybe focus on the strength training aspect yeah. just for simplicity's sake. And you recently wrote a book called Applied Periodization, Strength Training for Sport. So it would make sense that maybe we focus on those on the strength training aspect. But this was a contentious topic. Like there's lots of viewpoints and feelings on number one, what it is. Like I don't even think that is universally understood. And number two, it's importance because, you know, some people love their beautiful laid out plans and there's other people that almost seem to suggest it's like a non-factor. Like it, we should, it shouldn't even be, you know, worth much of our time to consider. So where I would like to start is let's make sure that the listener and, and we understand what periodization is and what the definition is, and then get into the underlying concepts or the underlying theory of where it came from. Sure. Uh, and, and I do agree with you. Like, I don't think, and I, I don't mean that with any disrespect because I put myself in the same category, but I don't think many practitioners early on in their career really understand what periodization is and means and why it's so important. And again, I was there, so it's mm. normal. It's just the way we're educated in school and the way professional sports work, it makes it difficult to really grasp what periodization is. Uh, in its simplest form, periodization means like organizing the training process. It's just organization. I always use the same analogy. Like if you want to go from San Francisco to Los Angeles, you have a map. You know that you're going to start from north. You're going to go all the way down south. And probably the easiest way to go from north to south is a straight line that connects San Francisco to Los Angeles. You could go all the way to Nevada and then back to Los Angeles. It just won't be as effective or as efficient. Periodization is the same thing. You have to go from point A to point B. You want to find what is the best, most efficient way of organizing your training to get there faster and safer. That's it. You have a goal. Your goal is competition. You have a timeline or a time frame. It could be six weeks, 12 weeks, three months, a year, four years. If you're working with Olympic level athletes, you just want to organize your journey so you get there in the fastest, easiest, most effective way possible. That's it. And of course, every the different sports, they require different approaches to periodization, but that's the extent of it. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. What becomes a little bit more complicated is the other side of the spectrum when it comes to periodization, which is programming or program design. And they're very much complementary aspects. Mm. One can't exist without the other. Your program design is your actual GPS. Like, okay, now you have your starting point and your end point. You need to go from point A to point B, choosing the right roads, turning at the right point. If there's a delay, you have to find an alternative route. That's programming. That's program design. Now I have my overall map. Let's put together the pieces that are going to bring me to my goal and my destination. So like exercise selection, intensity, volume, frequency, sets and reps and rest periods. And the two elements need to go together. You can't just 
I find a lot of young practitioners that either work or they live in a world of just periodization where they say, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go linear periodization. It's going to be four weeks of strength, four weeks of power, four weeks of whatever, speed. And they just completely neglect the aspects of program design. Huh. And others that are overly obsessed on program design, like to the minimum detail of every single set and rep, but they lose sight of the bigger picture. And a good practitioner should be able to balance the two together. And that's where I think the applied periodization model comes into play. Okay, we have these theoretical models like linear periodization, nonlinear periodization, block periodization, you name it, daily, undulated, weekly, whatever. We have all these model models. We have our foundations, our principles of program design, progressive overload, exercise selection, methods. We need to bring them to work together to put on paper an actual program that is feasible, doable, mm -hmm. and deliver results. So that was the goal behind, behind the book. Like take all this theory, digest it, make it applicable. Because at the end, like doesn't matter how fancy we like to sound, we are practitioners. We mm. need to be able to design programs and have those programs being executed by athletes with results. That's the most important thing. We, we, we can be excellent at reviewing papers, reading papers, comparing articles, do reviews. But if we can digest that and put it in, into an actual program, we, we fail. And when we look at the, the research shows pretty clearly that periodization means organizing your training program compared to non-periodized training, so not organizing your training program. If you compare the two, if you do organize well your training program, you're always going to get better results. But no one is there to say one model of periodization is the best model of periodization. Huh. Each model might work or might not work in certain situations, and it might huh. work great in other situations. So it's up to us to understand what those models are specifically what they were designed for and then be able to apply them because we can't ignore the fact that, yes, now we like to do science of periodization, but periodization, when it came to be as a science, science mm. it was mostly empirical. It was sure. experience-driven. And we need to understand that origin in order for us to understand why certain ideas even came to be, like why people thought about doing block periodization in first place. We take it for granted, but we need to understand that was to provide an answer to a very specific need, and that might not be the need of every athlete. It's a very specific, unique application that was designed to fulfill, for instance, the needs of track and field athletes, because for their schedule, for their system of competition, that, that approach to periodization worked better than traditional periodization or linear periodization. So there's, it's not that like, I love to spend hours talking about the history of periodization, but in this particular case, the history is important to know and to understand because it kind of shows the path. Okay, like if they created this model for track and field for like sprinters, does it make sense that they use it for like yeah. endurance runners? Maybe not because it wasn't even created for that, you know? Mm -hmm. It clears the water a little bit more so that we understand what we're looking at. Yeah, I mean... That honestly was a, a point of just confusion for me when I was a, a strength coach of like, all right, I don't know what I can use from these models because from my understanding, 
a lot of them were built off of very controlled environments with very high level athletes, meaning they are high skill and they have high physical capacities naturally. So I've had varying, you know, varying levels of skill and physical abilities. I have a lot of factors involved that are unpredictable and I don't even see them. They're not even with me for three months of the year. And I have no way of knowing if they are doing the things that I'm asking them to do. So I was just like, I, I have no idea what I can take from this. So was I off in my understanding? And I guess here's another thing with periodization that, or that gets linked to periodization that I didn't know what to think about. And it, it's this idea of prediction. If I do X, Y, Z, if I progress this way, this is where the athlete will be at this point in time. And this is where I would get coaches ask me, hey, what can we expect at the end of this phase? How many pounds are we going to increase our squat? How, what, what can we think about? And in my head, I'm like, I don't know. Like, is your, are your athletes going to sleep? Are they going to take care of their nutrition? Are they going to go out binge drinking every weekend? I have no idea. So I, have, I don't have an answer for this yet. We try to use periodization to like try to predict what that answer is going to be. Oh, if this athlete, this athlete will be at this spot in their progression, so I can go from this is what I can do from that point. That's what I didn't know. So is that an accurate way to think about periodization or was I totally off base? No, you nailed it. And that's exactly where program design comes into place or programming because periodization tells you, for instance, I'm just giving you a, a, the most basic random example yep. ever. Let's keep it. For instance, powerlifting, which is a, a sport that is just a strength, pure strength. Mm -hmm. Nothing can go wrong with that. You know that if you want to build more strength, you need to maybe first develop more muscle mass, maybe, then build the foundation of strength, do some power work, and then pick for competition. That's the extent of what periodization will tell you. These are the phases that you need to work on because physiologically, that's what you need. That's your map to go to your, comp to your destination, which is competition which is improving your PR, can't tell you how much you're going to improve your PR by. It's just, if you do these steps, chances are your PR is going to increase. Now, program design or programming will fill in the gaps and adjust the training so that you're on track with this progression. Like, and that's where like even auto-regulation comes into play and all those cool things about like monitoring athlete readiness and all that good stuff that allows you to adjust your program to, mm -hmm. make, to meet your athletes halfway because you know like like you said you can't predict you can't control what's going on with your athletes your athletes are giving you hopefully the best they can in terms of commitment and, and effort and dedication you have your perfect case scenario of like the program that you want to execute you need to meet halfway and that halfway is program design you're going to shape that program Never losing sight of your target, and that comes from periodization. Like if you're, let's say, using a linear approach and you are in a strength phase, you know mm -hmm. that your goal ultimately is to increase strength. So your program designs are going to be geared toward improving strength. But the way you go about it, so the way you actually create that program on paper, will need to come to compromises with your athletes and find the most suitable way to pursue your short-term goal so you don't fail on the bigger picture, but you still 
consider for that degree of variability, unpredictability yeah. that comes with working with human beings. Because like you said that, right? Like some of these models were created looking at elite level athletes. Elite level athletes means three things. Extremely good at their sport. So you don't really have to develop the skill. The skill is already there. You just have to perfect. Extremely good at the sport. Probably paid to do their job. So professional athletes. So athletes that can give you 100% of their commitment and extremely controlled environment. 99% of us don't work with those type of athletes. <laughs> yep. they're, just, they're just not there. Like we don't get to see them. So we need to be able to take those perfect theoretical models and bring them down to a more like human level type of situation, human being type of situation. Like where like you can account for an athlete being sick or having to study for finals or breaking up with a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever yeah. the case might be. Or even at the professional level, sometimes you deal with athletes that are professional, but they work. They have a schedule, yeah. they, they have a family, they have commitments. And that's where like learning how to understand periodization and apply program design that really fits that gap and allows you to stay on track dealing with uncertainty the best way you can 100 percent. yeah I, I think people at the professional ranks and i actually i am thinking nfl here the yeah. professional ranks there's a lot more very like uncontrolled than people realize i think I'll just think of, I have a very specific uh, situation in mind. I was with a, a, a very a good friend of mine. It was in the summer. It was July. And he had his NFL guys that he was prepping for camp. And one guy showed up and he had just, this is, it was his first day back from basically a month long European vacation. Wow. And I'm thinking like, this is this, you did that in June. You're an NFL player and you took an entire month off doing nothing and probably doing detrimental things for your physical condition. And now you have like a few weeks basically to get ready for your season at the highest level. And I'm like, that's something I would deal with as a division three and AIA coach. Like I'm thinking, you know, I, I would, it was not uncommon for me to have athletes who did nothing for three months and they come into the year in season. I'm thinking football and wrestling soccer and yet the difference there is you mentioned the skill i then watched this guy move and do his stuff and i'm like oh my gosh you look like you didn't skip a beat and there's the difference and so that happens even at the highest levels so one question i have listening to you talk or i guess a way to think about it and this relationship between periodization and programming and program design because I guess I probably focused more on the program design because I needed to think about logistics. I needed to think about where my athletes were at. And then I guess I was just trying to make sure I was progressing them in a way that made sense. So would you, would, would it be accurate to say that periodization is like the style of progression you're going to take? And yeah. then the program design is again, movement selection where do you start them intensity, volume, and even like the quality you're trying to go for. And then yeah. periodization is like, how, what's the style I'm going to go here? If I'm going to go linear and I'm going to, 
I'm going to increase intensity week to week by two and a half to five percent, and then concomitantly decrease volume by a certain amount. And then if it's weekly undulating, one week has this focus, the next week has a different focus, all those sorts of things. Is that an accurate way to look at it? I think it's a good representation. You call it style or philosophy. You know, we need to be extremely practical when we think about periodization. Like, it's not like we have endless resources, endless time to accomplish the task at end. Like, if mm. we need to win a national championship, we have X amount of months to do that. Like, we have, let's say, let, let's take track and field as an example. Like, usually you have your indoor season, your outdoor season. So, most of the times you have two macro cycles that are each six months long. You have the six months to develop your athlete if you want to win a championship. And you need to fit in everything you need to develop that athlete to the best of your ability in those six months. So in a certain way, in a way it is your style of going about it. Like you have that time constraint and you know that there are different ways that you can go about going from point A to point B. You can do linear, you can do nonlinear, you can decide to do block. And literally anything and everything can work as long as you create a system that is sustainable. So to some extent, it's a style selection. Like I like to do that. If I can bend the rules to make it work and I get the results <laughs> that I need, good for you. Of course, we know that if you look at the time frame and you know, you know how many competitions are scheduled for that time frame. let's say that hypothetically, you have no competitions in those six months. You're going straight from your off season to your one event at the end of the six months. Doing linear periodization makes total sense. Has been done before. You can apply mm. it. It's pretty straightforward. It's kind of intuitive. If you use it, chances are you're gonna you're gonna be good at what you do if you program correctly. But you can say, like, you know, like I do understand the linear periodization works, but myself, I prefer my style of programming better fits like a daily undulated system. If you can make it work, go for it. The problem is where you're in a situation where you are under more severe and strict time constraints, where, for instance, let's take like the traditional Division three type football season for a college, mm -hmm. where like kids are coming in somewhere in August, if you're lucky, you have about four-ish weeks of off-season, and then you have three weeks of season, and that's it. And then you're done. And in, during that season, there's a game every week or almost every week. Just look, if you look on paper, no theoretical periodization model fits that scheme. Like it's impossible. <laughs> you don't have your nice, like, let's do a strength phase. Actually, and yep. it me, then strength, then power. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. You need to bend the rules and adopt a style that allows you to get some sort of positive adaptation in the time constraint. If you can make it work with linear periodization, go for it. It's probably not going to work, but you can try it. Mm. Maybe a, a non-linear approach, a daily undulated, or maybe like a weekly undulated might work better. That's why we need to look at research. We need to look at evidence to guide us in what is the best style to adopt. Mm. But in a, in, a, in a minute, it's, it's just a suggestion. Like a good practitioner can literally make anything and everything work as long as the core principles are respected. And the, those core principles are program design, progressive overload, managing stress, and making sure your athletes can rest and recover while well between sessions. Because at the end, the bigger scheme of periodization is 
99% comes down to managing fatigue. Like mm. all these waving intensity, wave, people read too much into it. Like, yes, there is a metric. There's a mathematical model, if you will, behind the scenes that guides you in this like adjusting intensity and volume. At the end, it's just managing fatigue. Like every athlete cope with fatigue differently. Some athletes are in better shape than others. Some other, some athletes recover faster than others. So you need to be able to have that flexibility in your mm -hmm. system so that if you work with exceptional athletes that can yep. recover from anything, periodization like it's very, it's a very relative concept. Like whatever you throw that way, they're going to adapt and they're going to progress no matter what. But then you're working on the opposite end on athletes that are struggling a lot to improve and they're struggling a lot to recover then you need to have a very solid system in place to, to provide them with the opportunity to get better. And yeah. let's also not forget, I always said, this to, said that to all my students, like we love all these old manuals on like weightlifting and track and field and periodization, but we can't ignore the fact that those models were based around athletes who were using performance-enhancing drugs, mm. which means that the Great very point. fundamental principle that we just mentioned, which is recovery, fatigue, for them wasn't as big of an issue as it is for us. So the high level structure that you see in place and the high level of predictability on the results, a lot of that has to do with the fact that they didn't have that background noise that is fatigue. We have <laughs> to consider fatigue. Our athletes, and if they're yes, tired, yes. they underperform. If they underperform, they're more likely to get hurt. We need to consider that when we program, when we create our programs. So it takes a lot. And that's why I feel like this is a very exciting time for us practitioners because now compared to maybe 10 years ago, we, even at the lowest level, I'm, I'm thinking even like at high school level, yep. we still have technologies available at a very low budget that allows us to track athlete readiness and fatigue in a way that 10 years ago was like simply impossible. Think about heart rate variability. Think about like readiness test. 10 years ago, you had to do blood work to know if your athletes were prepared or not. Who has the budget to do that? And who can, like, that's not applicable. Nowadays, mm -hmm. with a jam mat that is like, $300 or like yep. A, yep. a wearable device that you can rent for maybe $20, $30 a month, yep. you can actually track athlete readiness every day. It might not be the gold standard, but it's still a good piece of information that you can use. So very exciting yep. time for practitioners. And I feel like that's where the strength and conditioning world and the sports science words are merging. Mm -hmm. Create that system where like, it's not just about data and statistics and p-value and all that stuff. It's more about like, let's measure adaptation at the best of our abilities. Let's track fatigue so our athletes can always be recovering well and at their peak form. Yeah, those are great points. So. Yeah, because the individuality aspect of adaptation to to the stimulus was always in the back of my mind yeah. as a team sport strength coach. Because I knew that people do not have the same rate of adaptation. They not only just physiologically, physically at the tissue level, but skill too. Like people do not progress with skills. So if I'm utilizing Olympic lifts in my program, well, that's another layer of my skill as a practitioner to say, 
athlete A needs to stay at this movement while athlete B is ready to move on. And it just kind of got to the point where I felt guilty if everyone was doing the same thing. But logistically, I just didn't know how to make it work. I didn't know how to make it happen. And where I, so yeah, that's, man, that could be an episode alone. So I guess what I would like to spend the rest of this episode is let's talk about fatigue management. How, how do we do this practically? Because it's just such a factor that even if like everything was controlled, people are still different. Like people just still are fundamentally different. So what are some just, I guess, big take home high impact fatigue management strategies that you would suggest to, you know, assuming most coaches don't have a lot of budget, a lot of time. And then I guess as best you can, how would that impact their progression model or or their overall periodization model? That's a great question. And I'll do my best to give you a very not precise because that's my answer, so I might be wrong, but like a very <laughs> accurate idea of what to implement immediately to see results and to see some improvement. So, and I'll do that giving you a, a very, like a real life example. So sure. for the last three years, I worked with a young athlete. She's Italian, although she's competing under Albanian flag. She's a, a skier and she's the high, highest ranked young athletes in the world now for skiing. So she's now a Red Bull athlete. So she's a very high profile athlete, which means, I say that for one reason, which means that she has access to endless resources. Mm -hmm. She's homeschooled. Uh, She trains every day, probably two or three times a day. And she's traveling consistently day in and day out for different competition, different venues. Like her season is punctuated with endless competitions. Like it's a nightmare for any practitioner to be able to program a strength, uh, like a strength training routine around that type of schedule. It's extremely complicated. So when we first started working together, I needed something that was, didn't have to be cheap because budget is not an issue, but easy to carry around with you, always available, always easy to implement, and, that, and something that anyone can use whether or not they're trained to use it. So something that is like, no matter where you are, no matter who is with you, you can get me that information so that I can track your readiness level accurately. Yeah. In and- so we filter all different options and we came down with three metrics and we used that for two years consistently and they had a massive impact on our training. One metric was as simple as it is, resting heart rate. So check your resting heart rate in the morning because if that ends up being elevated, you know that systemically you're not recovering well. Because when we say fatigue, we have to be very careful with that word because fatigue mm. is very much a multifactorial aspect. There's metabolic fatigue, neuromuscular fatigue, emotional fatigue, physiological fatigue. There's so many aspects yeah. of it. And it's, it's, very, it's a very bold statement to say, I am going to measure your level of fatigue. We can mm. see an aspect of it and maybe looking at that aspect, make assumption on the readiness of an athlete, but we can't say we're measuring exactly your peak. So 
the more metrics we have available, the better it is. So resting heart rate, and that's like any heart rate monitor device can do that. Like you wear it in the morning when you wake up, it gives you a measure. Heart rate variability, because that's a good estimate of your neuroendocrine fatigue to some extent. And that, again, I, I'm not going to name brands, but like there are many subscriptions that you can sure. access to and yep. they average anywhere between 20 and $40 a month. And you wear it on you. So no one even needs to measure it for you. The device does that. So you keep wearing it, you're good. The third one, which to me is particularly important because of course my job is to create the program for the weight room, is neuromuscular fatigue. For that, I had them buy a basic, cheap, entry-level contact mat, like a jump mat. They chose one because that's the one that we know, but there's so many available on the market, so no need to name one. They're small. Some of them are foldable. They fit in the majority of like luggage or suitcases, so it's very easy to carry around. It's almost, I want to say, like it's pretty much impossible to get it wrong. As long as you know how to jump and you've standardized the jump, mm-hmm. it's going to give you one metric, which is fly time. And if your jumping mechanics is consistent, you're going to get that metric no matter what. So just looking at resting variability and jump height, every single day, no matter what, traveling. I mean, she recorded that on a, at an airport before leaving for a competition. So that's the level of dedication that she had to this tracking system. But we, that was the only way we could peak for every single competition, even when she was competing four times in a week. Because huh. once you have that database of information, because then it becomes like an action-reaction type of thing. You have a program, your athlete is going through a certain program, it creates a stimulus, an effect. The following day, you have these metrics to measure that effect and see, okay, how much it fatigued you? Did it actually bring you in a super compensation state? Like, how did it work for you? How did your body cope with that load? And now you start seeing action, reaction, action, reaction over and over again. Now you're understanding the athlete. Now you're understanding the unique profile of that athlete and how that athlete responds to your style of training. Because yeah. if some other coach were to do the same thing, the system would work, but the response might be different because the coaching style, the coaching approach might be different, therefore might elicit a different answer. But it's the system that matters. Like you're not guessing, is this program fatiguing you? Is this program getting you better? You're measuring it. Like if your jump high was, let's say, 30 centimeters on day one, and then it starts fluctuating as you get fatigued, but the fluctuation is trending upward and is improving over time, well, then you know that you're managing fatigue and recovery well because your athlete is improving over time. And now you have an idea of like how to play that game in a way that where you're not guessing. You're, it's, it's more of an educated guess based on the numbers and the data you have more than just a random guess. Say like, let's do five sets of five because I feel like it. You're not guessing anymore. Last time I gave you five sets of five, you were demolished for a week and a half. So it clearly yeah. didn't work. Let's go to three sets of five. Let's see if that does better. Let's go to one set of five. Let's not do any squat at all and see if that works. At all. Like, we don't have an answer. We're looking for answers. We're not supposed to know what works and what doesn't. We're supposed to do a good job at highlighting a decent evidence-based starting point, but then we have to calibrate it on the athlete. And that's what makes a difference between a mediocre, a good program, and an excellent 
top level, mm. high level type of approach to strength and condition. And again, I bring this example just because the, the whole thing costed probably for three years, might have cost like $1,000 total for the yeah. upfront investment for the jam mat and the, the fee every month for the hardware availability device. So that's on a three years time, that's affordable for pretty much, I don't want to say every athlete because money is money, you know, but it's affordable for the majority of athletes that are truly dedicated to improving their performance and winning competition. So it's budgeting should not be an excuse not to use this type of approach. So I, I do want to just te tease this out a little bit. So there's a few things you said that in my head don't jive with periodization and that's at like reaction, the reaction, you know, you're reacting to the data you're collecting in my, it, like, I'm like, this doesn't, those words don't seem to jive with periodization. So how do you negotiate that? You negotiate it because you, so you're getting a reaction hmm. and that reaction needs to match your expectation for you to stay on track. And what I mean with that is. Let's give again the same example and let's keep it very simple this time. Again, powerlifting. Let's say that you want to go with a linear periodization model and you have your four weeks of hypertrophy, your four weeks of strength, and your four weeks of power, whatever. Now, those four, the very first four weeks, your aim, what periodization tells you is that if everything works to work right, were to work right, you need to increase muscle mass, period. That's, that keeps you, periodization keeps you on target. That's what you're striving for. Now, you need to know if your program design is eliciting that adaptation. Are you actually increasing muscle mass? So maybe you can do like a lean body mass uh, assessment every two weeks, and that can be your metric for that period of time to know if you are on track. Then you move to the following block, and you have four weeks, and now periodization tells you that to stay on track, you need to improve strength. Then maybe you can use, for instance, VBT to project your one rep max and see if your one rep max is actually increasing. And if mm. not, you make adjustment. Then you move to, let's say, power. And now periodization tells you that your power needs to go up. Then you can look at jump height and see if your jump height is increasing over time. So they don't collide. They actually complement each other very well. It's a matter of understanding what the journey involves. Like mm. you need to go from point A to point B what are the adaptations that you have to develop over time to get there? What are the key metrics that can tell you if that adaptation is happening or not? And what are the best tools to measure those metrics? Once you have the system in place, everything left is just program design. Like periodization sure. starts and ends there. Everything left is program design. Okay, now I know where I need to go. What are the tools that I need to deploy to be able to get there? And am I doing it right or wrong? those key metrics will tell you if you are or you're not. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That, but that's where, you know, as a coach, and I think a lot of coaches are starting, starting to understand this, is you do need to be fluid you need in, to. in the way that you do things. And then I guess, you know, again, that's where, where my head went was, well, what does this even mean for periodization? And maybe that's where this idea of it, it doesn't, quote unquote, it doesn't matter has come from. It's like, well, I don't know how these two fit together. How does a fluid approach and an overall organization and a plan 
how can I marry those up, you know, make good training decisions, respect athlete individuality while still trying to get them where they need to go. Because like at the end of the day, they're going to have to perform. And, you know, another aspect of this we haven't really discussed and don't have a ton of time to get into is more the fitness aspect of it. Like when I'm talking, when I say fitness, I mean client, athlete, person who does not have a competition. How do we make training decisions then? You know what I mean? Like I'm thinking of, you know, I've done CrossFit primarily for the past two and a half years and I don't compete. And I have been in a situation before where, you know, you're just training people to feel better, look better, be healthy. And as my, my, my background in strength and conditioning says, what's the progression model I'm going to use? What guides my decision-making here? I don't know because there's no comp, there's nothing to peak for. There's nothing to really get ready for, so to speak. So anyway, that's where I think some of the confusion rests. So, you know, with our time here that we have left 10 minutes or so, is there anything else you want to highlight on this topic? So I think you've given enough. I mean, cl- clearly, I think, I mean, if your book sales don't go up after this, I don't know. You know that's where we're going to find the answer to. So what are some other take-homes for coaches and here that you would really like to just impart on this topic? Yeah, if you allow me to, it's one that yeah. I recommend to like all my students. Um, and, and I say that with like full transparency, like, we need to know that we learn by doing mistakes. That uh, we mm-hmm. need to get out of our comfort zone and challenge ourselves with new sports, new athletes, new environments to work with to really learn and develop our craft. With that being said, we need to stay as humble as possible throughout, knowing that even like PhD level, research level, 30 plus year experience level practitioners, they still know very little of how the body adapts. We're just starting to learn. So we we can assume, we can expect a response from our athletes. We need to stay humble and see what we have in front of our eyes and make decisions the best of our abilities, which means that we need to have that humble approach and that open mindset where if we write down on a piece of paper, on Excel file or whatever we use, a week worth of training, we know that probably that's the farthest extreme possible we can maybe predict a response. Like, it's very bold for us to say, I put on paper a month worth of training. Here it is. Go, enjoy, train, come back and be stronger. It's not going to happen. It's Mm. not going to work. Doesn't matter how much, how many books we read, doesn't matter how many degrees we have, doesn't matter how many hours we spend in a lab doing research, the human body is very complex and unpredictable. And we need to respect it for it, not be afraid of it. We have to respect it. And we need to stay in our lane and be humble and be available to admit when we get things wrong, learn from it, think about it, and try to find a way to get them right based on the knowledge that we acquired in school courses, experience, whatever the case may be, but take it one week at a time. I would almost say one workout at a time because every time we put on paper a program and we put our athletes through that program, we learn from it, whether we did things right or wrong. 
but that's an opportunity for us to be open-minded and learn. So don't be afraid of admitting that we did a mistake. Try to be, try to use critical thinking about our mistakes. Okay, like objectively, what went wrong and what can I do to prevent that from happening again? Not assume that we got it right, because probably if there's something that went wrong between us and our athletes, it's more on us than on them. So we have to like be very, be good at self-reflecting and then move forward one work at a time, trying to learn from every athlete, from every workout session, from every program we write. We are constantly learning and evolving. So never stop doing that. That's my piece of advice. Yeah, that's really good. And it's interesting because as I'm sure you know, a lot of us who particularly went through school in the mid to late 2000s, 2010s, you weren't like quote unquote ready unless you could like write a beautiful year long plan. Like what's every mesocycle going to be? Let's lay it all out. And here's, you know, after three weeks, what's going to be your next progression, all this kind of stuff. And then when I got into it again, like, you know, this is NAIA level division three level athletes. That's the pressure I felt. I'm like, I almost feel like I've got to go week to week here just to honestly, and and, and all I was really worried about, because that's all I could really focus on was how are my athletes grasping the movements I was doing? How are they grasping the program? Not even necessarily the things that you mentioned, because I I didn't measure heart rate or HRV or anything like that, you know, partially just because I hadn't gotten to learning about it at that point in time. And then we still had the logistical issues, but and then I felt like a bad practitioner. You know, I'm like, I kind of feel like I'm going by the seat of my pants here, but I also <laughs> am going to waste my time if I write a three-month program because I know I'm probably going to have to change something. And so, you know, maybe I was, again, I don't, but that makes sense in my head what you said. We've all so, been there. It, yeah. That's like. That's the beauty and the downside of like academic level education. Like everything <laughs> we do is very theoretical. Like, you know, like that's in theory how you write a program. That's in theory how things work. Um, but then we are, we're not researchers, we're practitioners. So we put that into practice in a very uncontrolled environment, if you will. So yeah. we need to be flexible. And I, I feel like longevity for us as practitioners in this field comes with a degree of soft skills acquisition that is communicating about these issues. Like, okay, we know all the science behind it, all of them, but we need to be able to communicate it in a way that anyone, especially those who sign a check at the end of the month, understand mm-hmm. why we're doing things in a certain way, which is not selling them, it's making them understand. I don't want them to say a yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I want them to understand why we're doing yes. things. Because if yeah. they do, they truly understand it, they're equally willing to face success and failure because they know mm-hmm. how to move forward and how to like get better over time. So the sure. soft skills of communicating, I think, are yeah. very important. Yeah, it, that's a great point because I, that, I actually thought of that when you were mentioning you know, the style and the personality of the coach impacting results. is like the interpersonal factors here matter. But even like environmental factors like your athlete doing her jump test in the airport yeah 
that that I mean, might affect things. Like we know that like pressure and like she's maybe worried about the weird looks she gets. I'm not in my normal space. Did I get to a chance to warm up? You know, am I late for my flight? Like all these things are going to impact the performance on that day. So, man, this has been an awesome conversation. Where can people find you and follow you if they want to learn more? Well, thank you. Well, I'm very good with everything technology based. So I try to stick to one place only, which is Instagram. And I try to do my <laughs> bad stuff, like shading stuff there. So it's Antonio underscore Squilante CSCS. 99% of pictures posted are either my daughter, my wife, or my dog. But it is my profile and everything sure. I'm up to is usually there. Yep. And I don't know when this episode will be released, but as of the, um, July, I was elected to serve on the board of directors for the NSCA. And my role Congrats. is, thank you, is trending conditioning and education. So... Honestly, my goal moving forward, at least for the next three years, is serve our community of members at the best of my abilities so that everything that we just talked about in terms of like preparing practitioners for the job can actually happen on the undergraduate level, at the graduate level, and in college, high school, and professional environment. So if, you, if anyone that is listening to these episodes uh, has questions or wants to talk about, she wants to talk about any of the topics we covered, please feel free to reach out. I'm always available to share my email, my phone number, sit down, have a call, come down, visit me at USC if you want to stop by the lab. If there's any skill you want to learn, anything you want to practice or just uh, brainstorm about, I'm always mm. available because we're here to support each other. So what I'm doing for you guys now, you'd be doing for practitioners in 10 years time. So it's a yeah. good cycle to start. Uh, yes, I love it. That's awesome. Well, Antonio, thank you so much for your time today, and I look forward to talking in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose treat or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.